it's Halloween week, so uh, let's talk about monsters this Sunday, <laughs> this, which may be the weirdest first line of a sermon ever, uh, but just know this is going to be a little bit of a weird sermon today. We've been doing this journey that's, that's interesting, where we look at some of the complicated or strange parts of our scriptural text and, and try to see what the people who wrote it were trying to say to the people around them about about the light of God that shines in our world. And so this is going to be a weird sermon full of beasts and monsters and prophets and lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. <laughs> but go with me here. Go with me here because uh, it's in there and there's light that shines even in it. The Bible is, is teeming with monsters. Uh, from the sea dragon Leviathan to, to uh, the rumbling behemoth to the mysterious giant fish that swallows Jonah whole in the Jonah story. The creatures of the scriptural text like roar from the page and inspire works like this William Blake drawing. And so if you're looking for fantastic beasts, the Bible is where to find them. So uh, somebody's got to tell them that they need to look in this direction. Uh, but there really is some fantastic stuff in here, like fantastic stuff. Um, in a vision in the book of Daniel in chapter 7, the prophet encounters four great beasts, one like a lion with eagle's wings, and one like a bear with three ribs in its mouth, and, and another like a leopard with four wings and four heads, and, and a fourth with iron teeth and bronze claws and ten horns. Um, it's a lot. <laughs> but it gets even better because later in, in the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is like, oh yeah? Hold my butterbeer. Here we go. Um, it combines all four of these images into one single monster that's rising from the sea, like a leopard, lion, eagle, bear, with ten horns and seven heads, and on its horn are ten crowns. <laughs> and so if you need any last-minute ha- Halloween costume ideas, here you go. Um, lion, leopard, eagle, bear, dragon. Um, it's, it looks like the worst heavy metal album cover ever. So what is going on here? What is going on in this text? So as we look at this community library of Scripture, and we, tr- we try to find the light that's shining in here, what is the light that's in these kinds of stories? Is there light, or is it just stuff that goes bump in the night? Well, the literary genres that are collected in the Bible, the motifs of beasts that show up there, can represent a few different things to us. They can represent the awe-inspiring mystery of the natural world or the, or the fearful chaos of the unknown. But in the case of these fantastic beasts, these fantastic mutant creatures of Daniel and Revelation, they represent one thing, uh, and that is the evils of oppressive empires and cultures in our world. Beasts were a motif in the genres of Jewish resistance literature. And it's, it's easy for us modern-day readers to forget the conversations that were happening in the Bible. They were written by oppressed religious minorities living under the heels and the thumbs of powerful empires known by their extravagant wealth and their cruelty and violence. And so the the authors of the Old Testament are writing in this milieu. It was the Egyptian and the Assyrian and the Babylonian, the Greek and the Persian and the Seleucid empires that they're in conversation with. For the authors of the New Testament in the the church time, it was, of course, the massive Roman Empire that they were interacting with. And these various superpowers, which inflicted centuries of suffering upon Jews and other conquered populations— became collectively known among the people of God in this symbolic way as Babylon, the great beast. 
And so in these texts, when Daniel and and the book of Revelation envision empires as vicious beasts, what they're saying to us is that beneath all the pomp and circumstance, beneath the wealth and the power and the excess of these dazzling empires lie grotesque monsters, they say, trampling everyone and everything in their path. And these works are are a subversive critique of, of people and nations and systems and empires that endlessly accumulate more at the expense of everybody. They're stepping on along the way. They are beasts. And so when these writers then in these texts depict God as tolerating and then restraining and then finally destroying those monsters, what they're saying to us is that behind the surface, it may seem hopeless in this world, but the story is not over. Even the greatest empires are no match for the goodness and the righteousness and the justice and the religion of freedom that is our God's. And it may not look like it now, but against these beasts of Babylon, the resistance of God's people will win. And so in this symbolic way, these texts tried to engage with the most important questions the people who gave us the Bible were asking in their time. Questions like, how do we resist Babylon? Both as an exterior force that opposes the way of God, an interior pull that tempts us with imitation and assimilation. And they answered those questions with volumes of stories and poems and critiques and admonitions, grappling with their identity as an exiled people. Their anger at the forces that scattered and oppressed them, and God's role in their exile and their deliverance. And their ultimate hope that one day, as the prophet Isaiah writes, Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God. This was their hope, that God's way of love and of peace and of life wins. So one of the genres that this imaginative questioning takes place in, most clearly, is is a common literary form in resistance literature called apocalyptic literature. Uh, this is where the beasts really show up and get kind of crazy in this stuff. And so apocalyptic writing wasn't necessarily about the end of the world, and it wasn't even about WrestleMania 57 steel cage apocalypse, believe it or not. The word apocalypto in Greek means unveiling or revealing. And so an apocalyptic event or a vision, therefore, in some way, reveals things as they really are. It peels back the layers of pomp and pretense, fear and uncertainty to expose the true forces that are at work in our world. And using highly symbolic, theologically charged language, the authors of Scripture employed apocalyptic literature to dramatize the work of those who were seeking to resist Babylon and seek after the way of God, to hope to offer hope to those who are suffering under the weight of an empire that seems on the surface to be all-powerful and unassailable, they sought to pull back the curtain and show us what the destiny of Babylon really is and the hope that exists for people who try to walk in the way of God. So there's two primary uh, apocalyptic texts in our community library of Scripture. Um, There's Daniel, book of Daniel, and particularly chapters 7 through 12, uh, that was compiled during a period of devastating Jewish persecution by the Seleucid Empire. And Revelation, the book of Revelation, uh, that was written to Christ followers during per- persecution by the Roman emperor Domitian. And so in these real contexts, the beasts of Daniel and Revelation did not need to be literal to be real. So the people who first read the Bible, these forces were as real as the imperial forces that walked down their street. 
So the heavy fear that crept into their dreams and their visits to the marketplace and the hushed conversation as they tried to navigate what to do if the emperor demanded their worship from them. These were terrible times in the life of people in which words of hope and words of courage and words of comfort were needed. And so as biblical scholar Amy Jill Levine says in her book, The Meaning of the Bible, and so if you ever want to know what the Bible means, you can just get one book and read it, and it's good. She says, the point of apocalyptic text is not to predict the future, it is to provide comfort in the presence. The Bible is not a book of teasers or hidden secrets. Apocalyptic texts propose something so much more powerful. They proclaim that a loving hand is at work in history and assure that justice will be done. This was literature written under the inspiration of God in defiance by subverting the notion that history will be written by the powerful and the wealthy and the cruel and instead insisting that the God of the oppressed will have the final word, no matter how fearsome the beast. That is the light that they seek to shine in us and for us. And so uh, in the words of, of author Neil Gaiman, Fairy tales, like these stories, are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us dragons can be beaten. And these are the stories they're telling us, giving us hope. And as we stand now, none of us raise the flag over our nation of Babylon or of Egypt or of Persia or of Rome. But apocalyptic literature, for all its beasts and its crowns and its leopard, lion, bear, eagle, dragon things, these apocalyptic texts are just one small sliver of that revealing, veil-pulling-back literature that's collected in our scripture library. So apocalyptic uh, literature was just one piece, but another part of that revealing work was carried on by some of the most significant characters in our community library called the prophets. Um, We find that section in the section of the Hebrew scripture called the prophets. And biblically speaking, the prophets might be a little bit different than what we expect. A prophet was not a a fortune teller or a soothsayer who predicts the future. A prophet in biblical parlance was a truth teller, someone who, through the work of God in their life, saw things as they really were, Uh, saw the past or the present or the future, and, and does that revealing work of seeing things as they are and challenging the community around them to both accept that reality and to imagine a better one with prophetic imagination. As Walter Brueggemann writes in his uh, landmark book, The Prophetic Imagination, he says it's the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination, to keep on conjuring and proposing futures alternative to the one the king wants to urge us as the only thinkable one, to help us imagine a world that is different than the world we see around us, and thereby to live into the vision of the kingdom of God. So prophets like Isaiah and Amos and Jeremiah, they spoke truth to power and culture and empire, and they spoke hope with imagination to us as well, telling us that another world, another future is possible, that it can be and will be and must be in the power of God. This is the destiny of humanity and the destiny of what God is doing. And they poetically called us forward to this beautiful vision that they called the peaceable kingdom, the beautiful community. Whereas Isaiah says in chapter 2, they shall beat their, uh, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war 
anymore. This was the vision they helped us imagine. So Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos, prophets, and and Jesus stood in that line of prophets as well. Their words echo throughout Jesus' teaching. And they also show up in the the rhythms of prophets in our times, in the rhythms and the lines of Martin Luther King Jr., and and still in many voices that we hear around us today, because prophets are truth-tellers. And so as much as they spoke against the beasts of empire, the prophets reserved a special kind of flame war, stingingly critical truth-telling for their own people and their own systems and their leaders when they started resembling the way of the empire rather than the way of God. The violence and excess of empire was given, but when Israel itself started living in this way, indulging in greed and inequality, when it oppressed its workers and neglected the poor, when it did not welcome the stranger but worshipped wealth and violence with complacency, the prophets got really angry, like East Texas fire and brimstone kind of angry. So watch out. (laughs) So the prophet Amos was so enraged uh, that Israel carried on with, with empty worship practices while exploiting the poor and the oppressed that he channels the wrath, the anger of God and declares this, says, I hate, (laughs) I tell my kids not to say that, but here it right is here in the Bible, I hate, I despise your religious festivals, your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. And then he says, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. It's amazing what happens when we read the source material. Fiery brimstone revival preachers are no match for the prophet's calls for righteousness and justice and the, and the seriousness with which they took that call of God. The prophet's voice were, were always dismissed as, as too critical, but she always challenges from a place of deep love for her community and a deep seriousness to pull back the curtain and let us know what it is that we're facing. And so alongside these cries of anguish and anger and condemnation and critique, the prophets served a powerful purpose and shone a light in revealing perhaps what is the most subversive element of all for us. They offered us hope. They offered us hope. And so the prophets asserted, in spite of the power of Babylon, that the God of Israel, the God of slaves and exiles and despised religious minorities, remains present and powerful and enthroned above every empire. And that God loves us and hears us and carries us close to God's heart. Like a mother carries the child of their womb, Isaiah says, God loves humanity, loves us, and especially loves the vulnerable with a steadfast, liberating love. The prophets offered that as our hope of our God who was above all for all of us. Take comfort, my people, the prophets say again and again. I have good news and joyous tidings. Our God loves with steadfast love, and our God reigns now and forever. So the prophets help us see what is and help us imagine what can be, not in our own strength alone, but in the strength of the steadfast love of God. But most of all, they call us to act in hope and in love in our world. Because when we act in love for righteousness and justice in our world, we are joining the work of God, of, of the most powerful force in the universe, not empire, but a God who is love. 
who is greater than any beast, no matter how immovable. The story of our faith says to us that our God's love overcomes, it breaks chains, it makes free, and that that love wins. But what I love about the community of Scripture, about this conversation that we enter into, is that over and over again, it reminds us that the story is not over, that the conversation is not closed, that this work continues on in our generation. There are still dragons and beasts in our world, and there are still prophets in our midst. And so we are also still called to be people who put love into action. Those prophets still speak and still call us, and God still invites us into this work. So some of the prophets in our world today, I think, are people that we need to listen to, people like William Barber III of North Carolina, who, despite a severe arthritic spinal condition, has marched and preached for decades on civil rights, pressing upon elected leaders and private citizens alike the moral imperative to shock this nation with the power of love, he says. I also think of of prophets in my life, my clergywoman friends, who in the face of near-constant obstruction and all kinds of double standards preach the word and run soup kitchens and anoint the sick and tend to the dying and sponsor refugees and speak truth to power day in and day out with little thanks or praise. They are prophets of a better future, of a better future. And then there's many prophets outside of the United States I see prophetic action in the Coptic churches of Egypt. Uh, A few years ago, terrorists bombed the churches in Egypt on Palm Sunday in 2017. And so the next week, seven days later, these same people showed back up on Easter morning to celebrate the risen Christ. Their numbers literally spilled out the doors onto the streets, sometimes just showing up in the midst of this world. Showing up to the communion table together is a way of looking straight into the eyes of the beast and saying, not today. These stories are the people telling today's resistance stories, drawing from the Bible's deep well of prophetic examples for inspiration and strength. And though clear-eyed, they remain stubbornly hopeful and working from that same place of deep love for their community, for humanity, and for our God, and helping us imagine a world that can be, and will be, and must be. So we need to listen to the voices crying in the wilderness. They're pointing us, oftentimes, to a new king and a better kingdom. As Jesus said prophetically, let those with ears hear. So one of the prophets in our times, um, I think, is a young African-American woman named Bree Newsom. Um, she lives prophetically. She lives prophetically. So on a, a muggy June morning in South Carolina, Bree Newsom scaled a 30-foot flagpole outside the state's Capitol building and removed its Confederate flag. You may have seen the pictures. As police and protesters shouted at her from the ground, Newsom, who was 30 years old, wearing a helmet and a harness, safety first always. She shouted back, in the name of Jesus, this flag has to come down. You come against me with hatred and oppression and violence. I come against you in the name of God. This flag comes down today, she said. 
Because 10 days earlier, um, the beast had reared its head. A white supremacist, Dylan Roof, had walked into a prayer service at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston. And after being welcomed warmly and sitting among the congregants for nearly an hour in Bible study, he commenced his hellacious act. Uh, pictures on his website, Roof posed with symbols of white supremacy and neo-Nazism, including the Confederate flag. And so the massacre had reopened this debate among lawmakers about removing the flag from state house grounds. The conversation drone on, and some white citizens pushed back against the change, and Newsom grew restless with that stirring spirit. That flag had flown over the state when her fourth great-grandparents were enslaved there. And then it had gone away after the Civil War, but it had been re-raised over the state house in 1962 in defiance of the civil rights movement to make a statement. And it remained there. The same white stars and blue bars had appeared at countless Ku Klux Klan rallies and, and lynchings over the decades before they made it to the back of Dylan Roof's Hyundai Elantra as a vanity plate. The flag was more than just a flag, and it needed to come down. She said, I couldn't sleep. I sat awake in the dead of night. All the ghosts of the past seemed to be rising. Ghosts, beasts, monsters. In many ways, I think Charleston and the events there were an apocalyptic moment for us, for me. Not in any sense that it brought about the end times, but in the true meaning of the world word. That in some way it pulled back the curtains a little and revealed what lay beneath the surface. In our culture, in our country, in ourselves, the beasts of white supremacy and racism, of violence, of easy violence, of a kind of masculinity that is fearful and toxic, of cruelty and hate, beasts that we have lived amongst for too long. And so like the prophet Jeremiah who wore an ox's yoke to show Israel's yoke to Babylon, or Jehoshaphat who went to pull down the altars from the, to other gods from the high places in Israel, the prophet Bree Newsom pulled down the flag and helped us see what is and imagine what could be. So with the help of her friend and accomplice, James Tyson, who was a white man who ran support from the ground, Newsom scaled the flagpole early on Saturday morning. And she reached the top of the pole as the morning sun broke behind the state house and bathed it in light. And that resulting photo, Newsom clinging to the flagpole with a dislocated flag in her fists, is powerful to help us imagine a different kind of future. As she and her friend were handcuffed, uh, they quoted the Psalms, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? That verse found new life and new light that day. She declared God's reign over and above centuries-long reign of white supremacy, even when we had a hard time seeing it for ourselves. And she honored a long and storied tradition of prophetic protest. Her actions helped us visualize a better future and how we might get there. And it changed things. Uh, After 150 years later that summer, the flag came down from the state house in South Carolina. So she climbed the pole and she looked into the eyes of the beast and she said, not today, not today. 
So when I, I wrote this sermon earlier this week, um, I was going to end somewhere around here. I was going to say a couple more things and tell some more jokes and stuff. But <clears throat> And then yesterday, as I was sitting down, it, the news came out that it happened again. Uh, in the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, 11 people during a bris. Just it happened in Kroger in Kentucky earlier in the week. Violence and white supremacy emerging again, and it was like a gut punch in this. It was revealing, as I, as I speak to this, that, that unveiled the beast that we still live amidst in our world and made it seem like those questions that were asked by the communities of the Bible about how to live amongst and against Babylon in our time, that those questions are not abstract. They are alive for us, and they're important, especially important for the most vulnerable among us. And so I'm reminded of what Dr. King said after the bombing of a church in Birmingham in which four little girls were killed. He said, we must be concerned not merely about who murdered them, but about the system and the way of life and the philosophy which produced the murder. Or as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. God is at work in this, against, in our world, in in our time, against the Babylons among us, at work for transformation and liberation and reconciliation for the beloved community of all humanity, but against the principalities. God sends the Prince of Peace to overcome the powers. God sends something so much more powerful into our world to overcome the beast. God sent the Lamb. A lamb whose way is love. It calls us to love, selfless and kind, all-welcoming, self-giving, vulnerable, uplifting, oppressed, liberating, enemy-embracing, empire-resisting, always-hoping, morally courageous love. This love is antithetical to everything that Babylon stands for. This love is what brings down empires and flags. So Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh was literally Mr. Rogers' neighborhood uh, where the shootings happened at the synagogue. And you know how I feel about Mr. Rogers. So uh, I thought about what his mother told him when he was a kid in times of tragedy. He said, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping, which is beautiful, and it is true. There is a thread of justice and love in our world, a light that cannot be overcome. But I think in our time, now that we're not kids anymore, I think what our faith and our prophets and our God is calling us to now in our time is to be the helpers. This world is looking for helpers with moral courage, with prophetic imagination, with brave humility to change ourselves and critique our systems. The world is looking for helpers. And for all of us, we're called to be that, to love, to love embodied with hands that heal, with feet that draw near the hurting, with ears that hear the sighs and strains, and a heart to do justice, to live out love in public, in ways small and ways big, seen and unseen, to help. Because in our love, We help not just our neighbor, but we join the work of God 
who's at work through the ages, pulling things together when all seems to be pulling apart. And so when we love our neighbor, when we love the stranger, when we love our enemy, when we love the other before ourselves, when we help, we say in word and in deed, we say to the beasts, not today and not for long, because our God's love wins. Because to overcome the great beast, God sent not a greater beast, but a lamb whose way was a greater love. And the way of that greater love is calling us today to overcome the beast. God is sending us, you and me, our, our faith community together into this world that in God's grace we might love with a transformational, liberating, reconciling love. And so this week, as your heart stirs and you think on these stories of our faith and the light they shine, when that love calls us to listen, may we be ready. When that love calls us to speak, may we be ready. When that love calls us to patience, may we be ready even then. And when that love calls us to change, may we be ready. When that love calls us to climb the flagpoles of our world, may we be ready. And when that love calls us to climb down and embrace our enemies, may we be ready. May we be people of the great Lamb of love. May we be people of great love. That's our prophetic work. It is the means and it is the ends of what God calls us to. And it is a light that cannot be overcome. So may we, as people of a loving, steadfast, all-powerful, all-reigning, all-loving God, be ready. And may we love greatly. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for those moments in our lives like I had this week um, where it seemed like the curtains were pulled back. God, oftentimes what we meet there is heartbreaking. God, as we think of lives that have been lost under the thumbs of these great forces in our world. But God, we hear not just the revealing of the prophets, but what they are revealing, that we have in you a hope that is greater than the forces of our world, greater than the walls that we build around us. God, but a love that breaks them down. To overcome the beast, you sent a lamb, and so may we be people of that great lamb, of the prince of peace, the king of love, the Savior of all the world. Help us to be ready this week to love as you have loved us. We pray this in your name.